This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. I grew up in Lancashire, which is northwest England, in a very small farming village. And we owned a small plot of land where my mum had a couple of horses. We were completely on the outskirts, so it would have been about, I mean, a good hour and 20 minutes walk for me to get to school. So it was really sort of quite rural. And of course, being west of the Pennines, it rained all the time. (laughs) Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that this week is taking its foot off the gas. I'm Emily Knight. I mean, we had a goat that we used to milk before we went to school. We had chickens. I think I had about 15 animals at one point. In this episode, we're swimming in the slow lane. We're going right back to basics, stripping away the frantic, fast-paced nonsense of modern life with stories about slowing down. In a world of fast food, fast fashion, quick fixes and rapid response, we're learning to appreciate life at a very different pace. To take liberties with a little bit of Shakespeare, some of us are born into the slow life. Some achieve the slow life, and some of us have the slow life thrust upon them. Amy Powney was the latter. When I was about sort of 11 or 12 years old, my parents had this idea to sort of live the good life, this sort of harebrained idea that they would take our um, small barn and see if they could renovate it into a house. So we set off on a little journey and sold our house and moved to a caravan whilst my dad sort of tried to, by his own hands, turn the barns into a house. We actually lived off grid, so we didn't have mains water, mains electricity or mains gas. So my dad sunk a well by himself, which was sort of a giant sort of tube he sort of sunk into the ground. And we used to have a sort of hand pump that we could pump the water out. And then for our heating, we had a small gas stove, a bit like a camp stove. And electricity was a generator for a long time. I remember many funny stories of pumping the water and heating it up on the sort of gas stove and where the shower was in the caravan. Um, My dad had sort of drilled some holes in the top of the caravan and we'd sort of heat the water up and my sister and I were going to stand in the shower tray in the caravan and my dad would just pour the water over the top of us and that was our shower. So it was a really sort of alternative childhood. And I guess really set a precedent for me in terms of really questioning where everything comes from. You know, we didn't have those amenities where you could just switch on your light or turn on the television. You know, I just wanted to come home after school like my mates and watch Home and Away Neighbours and things like that. And we, you know, we couldn't unless my dad put the generator on and then we were allowed to have this many hours per night so you had to choose what TV shows you wanted to watch. And I guess, yeah, it sort of really set a grounding for me and where things come from and and not taking it for granted, actually. Sometimes having to do without something just makes you hungrier for it than ever. And teenagers will be teenagers. I think we slightly rebelled against what we were doing in a way and I wanted the opposite of everything I was doing. Amy began to get into the slightly more materialistic world of fashion. I saved up all my pocket money and I would buy my you know, Adidas three-stripe tracksuit bottoms or whatever it was I was desperate to have. You know, and the respect I had for them and the amount I loved them. And, you know, I remember getting something back and hanging it on the outside of my wardrobe and just staring at it for a few days before I even put it on. And I was sort of 
in love with my purchase in a way. And I think that's when I became completely intrigued by the idea of branding and clothing. You know, clothing was just not something discussed in our house. It wasn't an aspiration, you know. I don't even think we had a mirror in our house. We had like a tiny little mirror above our sink in our bathroom. So it really was my own little journey I went on to get into the fashion world. Amy followed her passion for fashion into university and eventually into the London fashion world. But as someone who was brought up close to the land, living carefully, sustainably and being environmentally conscious, in many ways she couldn't have picked a worse industry. I mean, we have so many sort of different ways to look at sustainability, let's say, within the fashion industry. There's the supply chain for a start and the problems with that, both environmental and social. Sheer consumption. I think we made 100 billion items last Three year. Three out of five of them end up in landfill. Cotton's a very, very thirsty crop. Pouring pesticides over the field. 270,000 cotton pickers have committed suicide in India alone. You know, if you make anything, it's going to have a footprint. There's no two ways about it. And um, But the way we make fashion actually has the worst footprint. We're not even being thoughtful in the way that we make it. The oil and gas industry, the energy industry, food, you know, we've talked about that for quite a long time. And yet fashion sits up there with the two of them and we haven't really talked about it. You know, there's just no, no love and respect sort of throughout the entire journey. I guess I was, what, 18, 19 and thinking, hold on, what am I doing with my life? And I'm studying to be this, you know, designer and I had these sort of ideas of what it would be. And my whole graduate collection was around sustainability and not one of my colleagues was even thinking like that. Everyone thought I was slightly mad. It really sort of, I don't know, made me question what I was going into. And if I'm going to continue on this trajectory, you know, I have to do it in a way that sort of sits ethically internally for me, otherwise I didn't want to do it anymore actually. I think I was a bit, bit of a crossroads. Amy got a job as an intern with a small clothing company called Mother of Pearl. Mother of Pearl's been around for quite a long time and I started working there 13 years ago when I graduated from university. Mother of Pearl gave Amy the opportunity she'd been looking for. To put her money where her mouth was, to tackle the problem of fast fashion head on. So it's my job to somehow get right back to the very beginning. So could I meet my cotton pickers? Could I meet my spinners, my weavers, my finishers? Make sure that along the chain we know exactly who's doing what and everybody's been paid a fair wage and any processes that we're doing, that we're doing them to the best environmental standards as possible. There wasn't just one thing you could do to put a sticky plaster on it and fix it. So that was why it was a three-year project. And last September, actually, we, we launched our first sustainable line. You know, now we currently shop for black, short dresses, let's say. But you can actually search our website for organic dresses or traced dresses or sustainable forestry dresses. And I think, for me, that's my biggest achievement because it's educating us and changing the way that we could shop. I think for consumers it's really hard, though, because just spending more money doesn't necessarily mean you've got a better quality product and that's where legislation coming in and making brands more accountable will give complete transparency to the consumers but in the meantime quality not quantity is definitely the only way we can turn around climate change happening. The creatures around us often live their lives at a very different pace from us. Think about the battle between man and perhaps his greatest foe, the mosquito. You spot one, landed on your arm, proboscis poised and ready to strike. You move your hand into position and then, quick as lightning, fast as a speeding bullet, 
you slap your hand down over the poor creature's fragile body. Except, in the time it took you to bring your hand down, our mosquito friend has more than enough time to lazily scan the room with its giant kaleidoscope eyes, observe disinterestedly as your hand descends and languidly launch itself into the air. For the BBC Natural History teams, who tell stories about creatures with completely different inner clocks to us, sometimes it's necessary to translate between worlds. To slow the action down so we can understand it, or speed it up so we can see it happening. In this episode, I want to introduce you to two people who do just this. Two time-bending magicians who use clever camera trickery to tell stories outside the normal rules of time. The first of those is this man. It's not obvious, just looking at a plant at a particular stage, how it's moving, you can't really tell. So often they surprise you by doing something you hadn't thought they were going to do. Tim Shepard, botanist, cameraman and time-lapse specialist. So that's the beauty of time-lapse, and you're, you're pushing the boundaries, really. Every time you film a plant you've not filmed before, you see things you hadn't expected. I went to visit him in his workshop in Devon, south-west England. Well, this is my studio. It used to be a sawmill, water-powered. It's a lovely old building, so I'm very lucky. OK, um, show me around and tell me what kind of kit you've got. OK, well, um, we've got a time-lapse running here of a whole load of fritillary plants in bud, the snake's head fritillary, so it's in a meadow set. Walking into Tim's workshop is like climbing inside a huge elaborate machine with added greenery. Raised beds full of plants at various stages of growth are dotted about here and there, with huge scaffolding rigs stretching up to the ceiling, loaded with cameras, lights, tracks, ropes and pulleys and banks of buttons and levers. There are whole worlds to be discovered, tucked away in unlikely-looking corners. Over to the left, propped up on a table, the Arctic. But I've been filming in the freezer here, time-lapses of frost-growing, those lovely fast-growing ferny ones, box-shaped ones or fan-shaped ones, depending on where the crystals are growing in the freezer. And behind this plastic sheeting, a tropical rainforest. Let's pull back the sides. I've got a mango. You're growing a mango in a shed in Devon. I am, yes. (laughs) This is looking very healthy, actually. Everything looks perfectly still, but of course, it's all actually in motion. The plants are growing, cell by cell. The cameras move forward, micromillimetres at a time. This quiet, still place is actually a hive of activity, if only we could see it. Well, Tim can. You're filming in a different time frame. If you're filming normal speed, the camera will run at 25 frames per second. If you run the camera slower than that, say one frame a second, but then when you play it back, you play it back at 25 frames a second, you're effectively speeding up the action. So if you took one frame an hour, that's 24 frames in a day. So a day's growth is squeezed into one second and almost magically the plants start to grow. One of the things I loved filming was a plant called Dodder, a parasite in the bindweed family. It basically grows these very long, snake-like shoots. So when it coils around the the stem of a host plant, it penetrates the the host plant tissues and sort of sucks out the juices from its its host. They make fascinating time-lapse because it's like a bunch of snakes 
walls are writhing around each other and it produces lots and lots of side shoots so you get masses of these tendrils all, all moving around in a snake-like fashion and the seedling has to find a, a host stem and latch itself on and if it doesn't find a, a host plant in that six inches then it's dead. I think the magic of, of filming using time-lapse is that you, you suddenly start to realise these organisms have got their own time scale and the way they move and, and develop. It's happening all the time, but you, without the time-lapse photography, you, you don't appreciate it. One of my favourite things is, is not actually a, a plant at all. It's a slime mould, and it's not a mould either, but it's a special group of, of organisms that look like slime but they have this incredible movement. They creep along as a slime and it just pulses and it's spooky and eerie, but fascinating as well. They appear to have an intelligence in where they go. So it's like they send out little feelers, little branches of slime will go off to, to search a particular area looking for something. And then if they find something that they can eat, it suddenly smothers it and all the other plasmodium rushes over and it all pulses away eating that bit of fungus and then once it's got all the energy out of that bit it'll send off its little fingers in all sorts of other directions. It feels like it's looking for its way around and it knows where, where it's going but it's not really doing that. It's, it feels like it's got more, it's got some intelligence which it, we shouldn't attribute it to it really. <laughs> the main thing about growing plants in a studio is you've got to understand what the plants need. So you've got to be able to provide them with the right amount of light, the right day length, the right temperature. I, do, I quite happily spend all my time looking after plants, actually. <laughs> Filming them is, is fascinating and it's a, it's a lovely way to make a living. But my main interest is the plants themselves, how the roots grow and how the leaves unfold. And you know, So just by having to film something, you start to appreciate a lot more about it. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're telling stories of slowing right down. Through the lens of a camera, we can explore worlds that move at a very different pace to ours. Some, like plants, are slow, but others are not slow enough. If we're filming something, just say a frog jumping, and you want to see how the legs expand and how the body curves when it takes to flight, I'd probably shoot that at 500 frames a second. 
then when you play that back, you can see in very slow motion, you can see exactly what the animal's doing. And the revelation of that is amazing sometimes. You see some fantastic stuff happen. This is exactly the same trick that Tim uses for time-lapse, but in reverse. Remember that our human eyes like to watch film at around 25 frames per second? Well, instead of taking, say, one frame a minute or one an hour like Tim, cameraman Kevin Flay uses specially adapted cameras to take hundreds of frames per second. Played back at the normal rate, and bingo, you've got slow motion. The beauty of it, I think, is you really have a chance to enter another realm, a different world. The macro world is so different, so um, surprising, so much revelation about it. We filmed a sequence a couple of years ago, and there's this little plant hopper. It's a tiny little um, bug that kind of ratches its legs together and then can throw itself over huge distances from one plant to another. We tried to film this at normal speed, and obviously it was literally one second it was there, next second it had gone. It was just nothing. We got a normal high-speed camera, which shot at 500 frames a second. Again, it was out of frame immediately. We couldn't see any detail. So we got a very specialist camera in, which meant we could shoot at 10,000 frames a second, which was remarkable. It's built for science to look at bullets and car crashes, that sort of stuff. And it was astonishing to see how these legs ratcheted and the joints all locked against each other and then it was able to push itself off at this huge rate, like a, as fast as a bullet going out of a gun. It was astonishing. Insects lend themselves greatly to um, high-speed stuff because there is so much surprise and revelation in their behaviour. This is a very, very small story. <laughs> it's a tiny insect called a forehead fly. I went to North America to film this. If you look at a fire ant trail, you see these tiny little flies hovering around and you don't really know what they're doing. They're just hovering over these ant trails. Put the camera on one and it was absolutely incredible. With the naked eye, you don't really see this, but they come down and they flashing very quickly, land on the ant's head and pierce the back of the ant's head and lay an egg inside the ant's head and then take off again. So the egg can actually hatch into a larvae and feed on the ant from the inside. At high speed, you can see it really coming down and clasping on, holding, probing, trying to find the soft bit at the back of the head and get the uh, ovipositor in. And that was quite, quite incredible. And that's one of the great examples where shooting at high speed opens up a whole story which we didn't really know existed. But quite honestly, everything, I, that's why I love shooting stuff at high speed, everything is a surprise. That really takes you into a different realm when you're seeing something which you would never see in any other way. I think all insects are exotic because they are on this different realm. I don't think you have to be in the tropics or abroad to be exotic. <laughs> insects have such a different way of living than anything else on Earth. I just made a film about dragonflies here in the UK. And both at high speed and in close-up, they are just the most incredible, incredible creatures, the most beautiful things. The colours in the eyes and the, um, the colours of the body and their flight, the most, they fly like, um, like fairies. You know, it's just the most incredible thing. And they are all around us all summer. And if you stop and look and watch dragonflies... There's nothing more exotic in the world. When things are moving too fast or falling apart in front of your eyes, sometimes you have to take a step back to make progress forward. And for a lot of people, getting out into the natural world, 
the world of still lakes, green trees and the rustling of the wind is a great way to get a much needed change of pace. For me, nature truly is therapy. It can be just as simple as a walk, you know, around a lake or a hike so I can clear my mind and then I'm ready to tackle, you know, whatever that next thing is that's going on. Our final story comes from Lauren Gay in Tampa, Florida. In 2014, my boyfriend and I were living together uh, with my son and his son, and it was going all bad. And so I kind of had the foresight that, you know, this isn't gonna, this is this is going to end. I knew that as things unraveled, I was gonna have to uproot my son and kinda start over. And emotionally, it was just draining. I was kinda on the verge of depression. I was on a breaking point, honestly. And I came to him at the time and I said, hey, uh, I'm going on this trip. I leave in two weeks. You've got the boys. Bye. <laughs> um, and I, I need to do this. And he understood. And, and so that's what I did. And it was almost like proving to myself that I got this and I'm stronger than I think I am. If I can do this, if I can go to another country where I don't speak the language and navigate this by myself, then me facing the ending, you know, of my family as I knew it, you know, that I could conquer that too. You know, if you grew up kayaking and hiking and those kinds of things, the things I do may not seem extraordinary to you, but especially in the Black community, it's just not something that we did. And it wasn't until shortly after college that I really got bit by the bug. I just fell in love with it, with the serenity of it, the peace, the beauty. I don't know, it just did something to me and I was forever changed. I looked at my savings and was like, where can I go with this much money that's gonna include my plane ticket and my hotel? And that's how I found the Azores. Um, I, I didn't know anything about this chain of islands, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic. The pictures were breathtaking. It, it truly looked like something out of Jurassic Park or something. And I was sold. I was like, okay. As soon as we started to approach in the plane, I knew I made the right decision. The, the greenery that just springs up literally out of nowhere. It is absolutely breathtaking. It's breathtaking. It just, it, it took my breath away. Lauren joined a tour group heading for a local beauty spot, the Lagoa de Sete Cidades, or the Lake of the Seven Cities. So these are twin lakes that are side by side, but they were formed from really recent in terms of the age of the earth, recent volcanic activity. And one side is blue and the other side is green. There's a bridge that runs right across the center of it. And you can literally stand there with your own eyes and look to one side and it's blue and look to the other side and it's green. And it is a complete mind trip. I took a walk around the lake and took my time and just sat on those shores 
and just started to kind of think and, and meditate. For me, nature is just what I need to completely reset. I call it my natural church because to me, you don't get any closer to God than those moments where it's just you and creation. I, I, I can't even articulate what it is. It can be a babbling brook or a waterfall or the sound of waves. There's a reason and there's a rhythm to nature and everything that's happening around you. There's a legend on the island of how the lakes formed. It's about a beautiful, lovelorn, green-eyed princess and her beloved blue-eyed shepherd boy suitor and her father, the wicked king, who, as wicked kings so often do, forbade their love. Embracing one final time before being torn apart forever, they cried, and the tears of the green-eyed princess formed the green lake, those of her blue-eyed lover, the blue lake. The real reason has less to do with star-crossed lovers and more to do with water depths and algal blooms, but please, don't let me ruin the mood. With an origin story like that, you could almost say it's the perfect place to sit and take stock of the sadness at the end of a relationship. What came to mind as I sat near that lake was that this beauty around me, the lush green, these beautiful lakes, all of this came from a very destructive force, which is a volcano, right? When the volcano erupts, it wipes out everything in its path, completely destroyed, it's gone, down to nothing. And eventually, over time, what comes from that is new life. And so that's how I saw myself at that moment. While it seems like I'm kind of in the midst of my own personal volcano and it's breaking me down, I'm gonna come out of this okay. If God can do this with nature and with this land, then surely this small thing really in the grand scheme of things that I'm facing, he can fix this too. And this is gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. The kids are gonna be okay. We're gonna be fine, and out of this is going to come something beautiful. Now, Lauren shares her adventures in the wild, hiking, kayaking, and exploring on her blog, Adventures of an Outdoorsy Diva. She's got a podcast too. It's been wonderful to show people that it, it doesn't matter your race, what kind of shape you're in, your financial situation, you know, there's a way to experience this and there's a benefit to it. Mayflies have the shortest lifespans on Earth. They only live for around 24 hours, a single day. You may have heard that fact before. It's one that's repeated fairly often, usually by someone trying to get you to seize the moment, to live every day as if it's your last, to look around you and appreciate the brief and fleeting beauty of the life we live. The problem is, that fact is not exactly true. The life cycle of what we call the mayfly starts as an egg, sinking from the bright water's surface down to a murky river floor. The egg hatches into a sleek little swimmer known as a nymph, who lives in the rich, dark waters of the riverbed, growing slowly. It molts its skin up to 50 times, growing each time, before it's ready for the final transformation. 
to swim for the surface, to sprout wings, to breathe air and fly for the first time, find a mate, and then, as the sun sets, to die. What we think of as a mayfly, most ephemeral of creatures, is actually just the spectacular final act from the life of an animal which has been biding its time patiently, deep in the dark and cold of the river, for anything up to three years. If there's anything to be learned from the mayfly, it's not to seize every day in a life that's all too brief, but the importance of taking your time, of waiting for just the right moment, and of planning a truly glorious exit. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and I hope you'll come back next week when I'll be bringing you stories about beauty. Till then, if you'd like to continue the adventure, why not sign up to our email newsletter? All the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth delivered direct to your inbox. Sign up at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter and never miss a moment.